If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. It's been a while, but we were in a series uh, in the book of Daniel. We worked our way through the first six chapters and now come to chapter 7. And you'll notice that chapter 7, a transition takes place within the book. And we've said this earlier when we began this series in Daniel. We had said how the first six chapters deal with historical narratives, court narratives, in which God, through his servants, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shows his glory and shows his power in the courts of the kings of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is a familiar name, I'm sure, King Belshazzar. And then once the Babylonian kingdom falls away and the Medes and the Persians come to, the, to uh, reign in that area, uh, even in Daniel 6, we come to, uh, to speak of uh, King De- uh, Darius. And in the midst of these kings, God shows his power and his authority uh, through these narratives as he rescues his people from a fiery furnace, from a den of lions, as he humbles King Nebuchadnezzar, sending him out of his kingdom and restoring him to power. In all of these ways, God shows himself as the ruler of the kings of the earth, as the one who removes kings and sets up kings. And that, as it was true in Daniel's day, so it remains true in our day. But now here in chapter 7, there's a transition in the book from historical narratives to now what's often be defined as apocalyptic narratives. Uh, as Daniel receives these visions of what is to come, what is to take place. Now, many of us hear that, and often we get that meme with the guy with the, the whiteboard behind him and all the lines are drawn, and the crazy guy comes to the fore. That often comes to our minds. Um, hopefully, that's not what we become here. But rather, God reveals to these things to us for his church, not that we might uh, map out a very detailed course of what will take place, but that we might understand the basic purposes that God has for his world. And they arise not from the fact that man can simply just know the future, but because God himself has ordained the end from the beginning. That God himself is the one who governs this world according to its purposes, and that history unfolds as God has defined it and as God has uh, determined it. And therefore, God can reveal what is to take place to his servants, even as he does with Daniel. And Daniel gives us in chapter 7 a sweeping view of history, a panorama of world history from Daniel's own day to the very end, including our own day, that we might understand the purposes of God in establishing the kingdom of his son. And so we refer to this as apocalypse, not because, uh, again, it moves us into the realm of crazy, but the word apocalypse simply just means a revealing. It means to reveal something. And so Daniel 7 and the rest of Daniel through chapter 12 is an apocalypse in the sense that it's revealing something. What is otherwise veiled from our eyes the unseen realities behind all that takes place around us is opened up before us. And so it's, it's delivered to us in symbols and in visions, not reveal, revealing what things look like, because we're going to read about these monstrous beasts that arise out of the sea in this chapter. And we're not to be looking for such beasts in a literal sense. And yet, that which they're pointing to, the beasts symbolize, reveals the true bestial nature of these kingdoms and kings that rise and fall. And so the revelation is not what things look like, but what things are like. Um, And we'll say more about that as we kind of dive into this chapter a bit. And so 
Uh, kind of just way by way of preface to Daniel chapter 7. I'll also say this before we read. Um, in preparing this, I probably had an hour and a half worth of material. It's a very important chapter. And realizing that, um, I'm going to take it in, in different, uh, in probably three sermons to get make our way through Daniel chapter 7. So we're not going to be here for an hour and a half, uh, though I'm sure we would delight in being in God's word for that long, right? Um, but we'll instead focus mostly on the first 11 verses. Um, keeping it in context, it's hard to just divide up this vision, but we'll, we'll kind of take this in three different sermons. And so we won't say everything today, just get in, uh, an introduction to it, uh, mostly with the first 11 verses. And so let's read uh, Daniel chapter 7. We'll read the whole chapter. This is the holy and inspired word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts, great beasts, came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As to the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. 
and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the peoples of the saint of the most, saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll notice how uh, the time frame in which this vision begins. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Now, what we read earlier in chapter 6, Daniel before King Darius uh, being uh, sent into the, into the den of lions, that's going to take place much later. And chapter 7 is bringing us back in time to the reign of King Belshazzar. And you remember when we looked at Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, there was something mysterious about him. There was something peculiar. He seemed to be one who had a secret. Have you ever been in a situation where everybody is panicked and everybody is running around and fretting themselves and in a frenzy, but there's one person who is just calm and relaxed? Now, either they're just completely ignorant of what's going on or they know something that, somebody, uh, that the rest of the people don't know. In many ways, Daniel appears like that, right? We see him in the midst of the Babylonian kingdom, and, and these decrees are going out, ones that would cause us to panic, right? If you worship anyone but the king for 30 days, you'll be sentenced to death by uh, being torn apart by lions, right? There's, there's, there's a great urgency that's going on, and yet in the midst of it, we had so, seen how Daniel was silent, and just kept doing what he had always done. He seemed to be a man with a secret. He seemed to know something that the rest of us didn't know. What's the source of Daniel's calmness, his coolness, his being collected in the midst of a decree that would sentence him and the people of God to death? What secret does Daniel bear? And in many ways, the revealing of chapter 7 shows us that secret. Because prior to this event, Daniel was given this vision of the Ancient of Days seated upon his throne in the heavens as one who himself is not running and panicked, one who himself is not trying to extinguish fires and trying to figure out how is he going to solve this problem. His people are in exile. They're being sentenced to death. What is he going to do, right? He's seated upon his throne in regal august authority in the midst of all of the sea of chaos that happens below. 
showing his sovereignty over all things. It's this vision that Daniel received. And therefore, in the midst of the sea of chaos, in the midst of Babylon, Daniel himself can reflect something of the ancient of days, even as God's church is called to reflect the tranquility and the serenity, the confidence of the ancient of days, even as we exist in the midst of a chaotic world, a world in which beasts arise and devour, a world in which the creation is undone all around us, yet in the midst of it, we can have the same confidence, the same coolness of David as we ourselves are brought into what he saw that was the secret of these things for for him. And so as we begin to think about Daniel 7, we are brought out of merely just the prayer closet of our lives, right? Those are, that's important for us. We ought to be in our daily devotions. And in, 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 in the kind of the things that seem so small, we're brought into this world movement. We're brought into the ancient of days who governs the history of all things. And Daniel 7 gives us a panoramic view of history, what has come, what is to come, and all of it, and showing us in, 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 in a broad sweep that our God remains sovereign over all of it and will accomplish his purposes. Right? We can get lost in a lot of the details here and, and we could, we'll explore them. But the, the overall impression that this vision is meant, to left, is meant to leave upon us is that the Ancient of Days will accomplish his purpose. Our Father in Heaven will establish the kingdom of one like a Son of Man Despite the raging and despite the powers of the kingdoms of the earth, God will accomplish his purposes and therefore we have no reason to fear, but every reason to trust him as Daniel did, being silent before a decree that would send him before lions, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, confessing before King Nebuchadnezzar, they will not bow down to his image, whether whether he throws him into the flames or not. This is the kind of confidence that Daniel 7 works in us. And as I said earlier, we're not going to look at everything today, but specifically I want us to focus on the beasts that arise out of the sea in the first 11 verses and the contrast between those beasts and the Ancient of Days, seated serene in the heavens. And so that's going to be our main uh, focus uh, today to think about these beasts. Now the question is, as Daniel is looking out, right, we'll work our way through these verses here. Verse 2, or rather going back to the end of verse 1, it says that Daniel wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now before we dive into it, note that what is given to him is of course a dream. And so what's, what is conveyed to him is conveyed to him in symbols, right? Again, these are not to be read as literal things, uh, but rather as Symbols are pointing to otherwise to, to certain realities. Often, what something is truly like is hidden from us, right? Appearances can be deceptive, right? Beauty is vain, charm, charm is deceitful, right? right? Appearances can often be deceptive. And the true nature of something is often hidden from us. And I've used this illustration before, but I think it's quite helpful um, from Beauty and the Beast, right? The prince is turned into a beast, right? He's made on the surface of thing now to look like a beast. But the reality of it is that he's always been a beast. 
Even before his appearance was like that. Prior to that, he was a handsome prince. He looked, he looked like a, a nice, handsome man. But inside, right, he was filled with that bestial nature of pride and self-obsession. And what ended up happening was is simply that his appearance, he took on the appearance of what he truly was all along. Right? Appearances can often be deceptive. And we look around us, and things may, may, may seem to be one way, but God's word reveals to us the true nature of things. And so these, king, uh, these beasts, as the vision later says, are the true nature of various kings and kingdoms that will rise uh, upon the earth. And so, and they're given again in symbols. So notice uh, Daniel 7 verse 2. As Daniel begins to uh, explain to us and divulge to us the dream that he received. says there that Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Throughout the scriptures, the sea is the place from which chaos and evil originates. right? And so it's the place, as we even see here, the beasts are coming out of. And the sea throughout, um, especially the uh, wisdom literature of scripture, becomes symbolic, again, of the source of godlessness, the source of chaos that runs throughout the earth. The sea was a place from which evil arose. We see this, uh, for example, throughout the book of uh, Job, where Job speaks of the great Leviathan as the one who, who roams the seas, as, as, as the place from which evil and chaos and disaster arises. And so out of this sea, and you might imagine it not just as a calm sea, right? you might think of yourself maybe this summer taking a boat out into the ocean or whatever it might be, and you hope for calm weather, but the kind of sea that is pictured here is one of fierce winds and of waves going as high as the heavens and descending as low as hell. It is a chaotic place. It is, a, it is a dangerous place where people are reeling and staggering. Darkness, gloom, thunders, pouring rain, strong winds. This is the kind of sea that, that Daniel sees before him. And this notion, actually, uh, you know, where does this symbolism come from? Well, like, mo, mo, like much of the symbolism in Daniel uh, seven and elsewhere, it comes from other places in the Old Testament, and it's drawn especially from the opening of the book of Genesis. You hear these words, familiar words, but notice what it says in Genesis one: "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." And what we have, what follows, is that God speaks and he begins to order the chaos, right? He begins to separate light and darkness. He begins to um, establish the various domains of his creation, fill them with creatures. But it begins with a sea, the spirit hovering over the face of the waters, and that God would then order what is otherwise chaotic. And here, in Daniel 7, Drawing back from that creation account, the sea it reappears in a sense. And the chaos again needs to be ordered. 
the, the disorderliness of God's creation needs to be reined in. And, and, and yet before that happens, right, we're given a vision of, of the chaos that will unleash and unfold upon the earth. And so the sea becomes symbolic of a place from which evil and chaos arises. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Now, the, the notion of these four beasts coming up out of the sea tie back into the, the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this great statue arising and the statues made out of four parts, a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, a midwaist of bronze, and then legs and feet of iron and clay. And so Daniel had told King Nebuchadnezzar that that statue, those four different parts, correspond to four different kingdoms. The head corresponded to the kingdom of Babylon. The silver corresponded uh, to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, The bronze corresponded with the rise of the Greek empire. And then the iron feet and clay corresponded to the Roman empire. As Daniel writes, he's living in the midst of the Babylonian empire. And yet still to come were the Medes and the Persians. The Greeks with Alexander the Great being swift like a leopard as he's described here. And ultimately, the Roman Empire coming uh, to, uh, to dominate that area of the world as well. And so just as those kingdoms were spoken of in Daniel 2, so those very same kingdoms are spoken of here. Again, not in terms of what they look like, but in terms of what they are like. They're compared to these beasts that arise out of the chaos, enraging against the work of God, in defiling his creation, in mutilating his work, in defacing his glory over this earth. That's the basic idea that we see here among these, um, these four beasts that arise up out of the sea. The, the dream of Daniel 2 and the dream of Daniel 7 correspond to one another. Now, as I just explained to you, I think that's how we ought to understand, though there's some debate regarding what kingdoms arise, and I think that's how we ought to understand these four beasts. They're four successive kings or kingdoms. And we read this because that's what the text tells us. For example, when Daniel, after he sees this vision, asks for an interpretation, notice what it says in verse 17. He's given a very brief interpretation of it. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And, uh, and so we read these kings um, as those who represent the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, the, the, uh, the first one being a lion, representing the kingdom of Babylon. The bear, representing the Medes and the Persians. The leopard, representing Greece. And the fourth beast, representing the Roman Empire. And this idea of, of, of using various animals, uh, often animals of prey, to symbolize, symbolize nations is not an, uh, an odd thing to us. I mean, the United States is, has the symbol of the, the bald eagle, right, as their symbol. Uh, how much different America might have been if Benjamin Franklin's uh, animal was, was uh, chosen instead of the eagle, which he decided wanted a turkey. Um, so, I don't know, America as a turkey would be quite different than America as an eagle among the world. And so, right, we're, we're familiar with this. Our sports teams have animals often representing them, right? It's all around us. And so, in the same way, these animals are meant to represent something of the nature of these various kingdoms, whether Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greece, and others. 
And while we can kind of focus on some of the details, I don't think that's particularly uh, helpful. But I do think it's helpful for us to kind of draw some of the characteristics that mark these kingdoms. Because in many ways, these kingdoms are simply representations or instantiations of the city of man. The city that man seeks to build in defiance of the God of heaven. The city of man that man seeks to build in pride and for his own glory. And the city of man that has existed not only from Babylon and uh, the Medes and the Persians and Greece and Rome, but one that continues to our day and one that extends all the way back to even the Tower of Babel in Genesis. These are instantiations of the city of man. And we need to recognize what truly defines and characterizes these, this, this city and this kingdom of man. What are the things that ultimately they, are, they pursue? And though on the surface they may appear one way, yet what is their true nature as God reveals that to us? And there's four things that I want us to see about these kingdoms that define them here. The first is that they are agents of decreation. They're agents of chaos. You'll notice as these beasts arise, they're, they're beasts that themselves are mutated, right? As they're described here. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And other ones like a bear uh, that rises up and so on from there. And what we begin to see is that these kingdoms arise in defiance of God the creator and they defy God the creator by defacing and mutilating his good creation right how do you attack God of course they're not strong enough to do, uh, for a direct assault against the God of heaven but they do so by attacking his good creation God had ordered all things right in six days God spoke let there be and there was light and so on and God ordered his creation at the end of it as he creates man, he creates mankind in his image, creates us. As the crown of his creation, he then declares that his creation is very good. But sin enters into the picture and the city of man comes to establish itself in the world by attacking God in his creation, by distorting his good creation, by undoing what God has ordered. And so the city of man is marked by a power of decreation. We see this in the mutilated beasts themselves, where Adam had been created to exercise dominion over the beasts of the field. Here the beasts are roaming, here the beasts are reigning, here the beasts um, are dominating the earth and undoing the goodness that God has brought upon his creation. This is something that the Apostle Paul reflects on, for example, in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read some verses there. You can turn there or uh, simply listen. There in Romans chapter 1, Paul reflects upon the decreating, the, the, the chaotic, the undoing of God's good creation that marks the unrighteousness of man. And his pursuit to attack God in the place where God has revealed his power and his glory in his creation. So Paul says this. I'll read just a few verses here. Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, right? The creation, the heavens all testify to the glory of God. They're all his handiwork and he made them to reflect who he is so that there's not a square inch that we can go to on this earth and not see the glory of God revealed. As he goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things." Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done." They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, we're not opening up this whole passage here. In Romans, but we do see a common um, um, characteristic of the city of man that they see, it seeks to undo the good order that God has placed in His creation. And what Paul highlights for us, and it's quite important for us to hear today, is that the pinnacle of that is that when is that when image bearers themselves corrupt the good order that God has placed upon themselves. And Paul explains that in terms of homosexuality. Paul is saying that that is the pinnacle of man's desire to undo the good order that God has placed. That it is an act of decreation. And that ultimately it is a defiance against the God who has ordered his creation. Part of that ordering was, as he says, to make man in his image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. And he made them that one man might marry one woman in a single relation. And therefore, our present desire as a society to, as Paul says, not only to, 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 uh, to do it, but to give approval of it, is seen in the LGBTQ movements that we see all around us, taken even further with the transgender movements that seeks to take what God has ordered and and set upon his creation to exercise man's supposed power to change genders and to undo the good creation that God has placed and made and, and ordered his creation. 
And therefore, when we begin to look at the, the rise of these kingdoms and these beasts, we recognize that, that that is its pinnacle, but at all points it seeks to undo the good order. They are agents of decreation, these various beasts that rise up around us. And therefore, they take what belongs to God and counterfeit it. That's the second thing that we see regarding these, uh, these kingdoms, the kingdom, the city of man. They seek to undo the good order as agents of decreation, and then they seek to counterfeit the good things that God has done. Again, we see this blatantly before us even in our own day. We see this in terms of the co-oping of the rainbow that once was a symbol of God's mercy and God's patience to withhold his judgment upon the earth to never flood it again and yet to take it as a symbol of pride, the very thing God hates takes the good things and counterfeits them in order that people might be allured into them. And therefore takes the pleasures of God and offers counterfeit pleasures that we might be drawn into them. We see this throughout the book of Revelation, for example, in terms of the city of Babylon as that which seems to possess great wealth and great riches It seems to offer what will satisfy and what will bring uh, fulfillment to lives. And it turns out that in the end, all of those things will go up in smoke. They cannot fulfill what they promise. It's all just counterfeit. And so they are a counterfeit, ultimately, uh, to God's good purposes. Adam, in the beginning, was tasked, as he said, uh, as the Lord spoke to him, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over it. And then he goes over the various, the land animals, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. Adam was to exercise a dominion over the earth that brought glory to God. Adam, as the true man, as the true son of man, was one who ought to exercise dominion as endowed by God for his glory. In his fall, however, when Adam obeyed the voice of the serpent rather than his God, He brought about the beginnings of the city of man in which man seeks to live apart from the very word of God. And yet, man continues to desire dominion and continues to desire control and power. We see that in world empires, whether it is those of ancient uh, Babylon or uh, the Medes and the Persians, the Greece, Rome. See that at present day with various um, aggressive totalitarian regimes in our own days. All of this is a counterfeit to to the dominion that man was meant to exercise on the face of the earth. The dominion of these nations is one of cruelty, tyranny, oppression. Ones that are meant to bring glory to man and and are filled with pride, deceit, cunning, and all the various evils that the Apostle Paul mentioned, for example, in Romans 1. Maliciousness. These are counterfeits, counterfeit dominions. And dominions, as we're going to see, that will ultimately be overrun and destroyed in the end. Yet in the midst of these counterfeit dominions, in the midst of these counterfeits, there's this promise throughout the scriptures that a second Adam, a last Adam, will come to restore all things. That though the sea of chaos is now erupting with beast after beast coming on the face of this earth, that A son of man will come, a new Adam will come to restore proper dominion to the people of God. 
for the glory of God. This, for example, is what Psalm 8 longs for. We had sung Psalm 8 as our opening hymn. But Psalm 8 tells us this. A psalm that both reflects upon the kingship that belonged to David and also upon the creation account in Genesis. A really significant psalm for all throughout the New Testament. It's it's cited in a number of places and alluded to. But let me read just a few verses there. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right Now this is a confession that the psalmist makes by faith. Right, They can't see this, but they believe it. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so what this psalm is doing is it's in looking forward to a, a, a second Adam who will restore dominion upon the earth and restore all things back to their true nature, ordered by God and bringing glory not to man, but to God. And yet, before we get to there with the Son of Man coming later in Daniel 7, we first note the counterfeit dominion that belongs to these cities and these kingdoms. And so they're marked by agents of decreation. They're marked um, also, as we've just seen, by counterfeiting with, with the good things of God. But then we also are given great hope in the midst of this alarming vision, a a vision that leaves Daniel colorless, my color changed, and he's greatly alarmed. In the midst of all of the sea of chaos from which these beasts are arising, in which they seek to undo and um, unravel the very fabric of creation as God has ordained it, to counterfeit those good things to allure people away, right? There's still good news couched in to this description of the beasts. And that is the third point regarding them, that they are controlled. They are controlled. You notice, for example, that what ultimately stirs up the sea from which these beasts arise? It says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Winds from before God. Now, we don't know God's reasons and purposes for them, but we do recognize That these beasts do not arise in their own strength and from their own purposes. They do not catch God by surprise, but rather they stand under his sovereign control. And this has been the point all throughout Daniel. That God is the one who removes kings. And God is the one who sets kings up. And so as we think about even these beasts and their agendas to undo the very fabric of God's good creation of his world... We recognize that they do not act autonomously, independently of God. They they are not themselves powerful, but themselves dependent upon the very one whom they seek to destroy. And that's the irony of everything. That's the irony of the world around us. The very ones who rage against the God of heaven, the very ones who oppose Christ as king, 
are dependent upon him moment from moment. For every even breath that they breathe, it's God who sustains them. It was Cornelius Van Til who had said that a little child is only able to slap his father's face, not because the child has strengthened himself to um, overpower his own father, but because the father has placed him on his lap. And so too with the very world that rages, even these beasts that may seem so, from our vantage point, so powerful, so alarming, so, so great and overwhelming in their strength, how do you stand against them? From God's perspective, they are but playthings for him. And he controls them, he leashes them, and they do not, they do not have autonomous uh, freedom just to roam and do what they please. And we see this reflected throughout this description of these beasts, not only in terms of uh, the winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, but also when you, th- when you look at these various um, beasts that arise, we're, we're shown how their dependence, for example, the lion, it says in verse 4, the lion was lifted up. And made to stand, a man's heart was given to it, right? So this beastly thing, it's again counterfeiting man. He's made to stand up and rise as if he were man himself. But again, he does not lift himself up. He does not stand himself, but rather he is lifted up and he is made to stand. Likewise, the bear, the second beast that arises. The bear devours, but a command goes out. You might say, who's commanding the beast? It says, arise, in verse 5, arise, devour much flesh. Who's commanding the beast? The bear. Verse 6 says that the leopard-like creature, referring likely to Greece and Alexander the Great, and his swiftness in conquering an incredible amount of land and nations. It says in verse 6 that he was given dominion. Now the only beast, the fourth beast, which we'll say much more about next week or in the week after, is at first shown to have no sign of being dependent. Um, but we'll see how that changes uh, much later as the Lord um, brings him under control as well. But right, as, we th- as these descriptions are given, we're shown that though these beasts are ferocious, and though the true nature of the city of man is overwhelming for the people of God living among, uh, among it and within it, that God has not lost control over his good creation. We see this um, For example, um, one verse I want to read in Job chapter 41, very similar idea. As Job himself had become one who um, was inflicted with great suffering, uh, it seemed as if the sea was spewing up evil after evil upon him. And the Lord presents himself to Job as a sovereign one, even over the chaos that comes out of the sea even over Leviathan, a a mythical creature. Some think it might be referring to an actual sea monster. Um, But at least, if it is or isn't, it it at least is the Leviathan becomes symbolic of, again, the chaos that may come out of the sea. And so the Lord says to Job in Job 41, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The Lord's going in you know, a nice morning fishing with Leviathan. Like, who does this? Well, the Lord alone. Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words and so on from there? It's the Lord who has power. You can read about Leviathan in Psalm 104. 
Isaiah 27 as well, but I'll um, forego looking at those. So when we think about the city of man and these beasts, right, we've seen how they are agents of decreation, unraveling and undoing the good fabric of God's creation, how they are those uh, who themselves counterfeit the good things of God, even as the lion is made to stand up like a man and counterfeits the dominion given to man. And then we saw with good news that these are yet still controlled, that the God of heaven still remains sovereign over them, using even, the, even their evil deeds for his good purposes, as he alone can do. And fourthly, the final thing we see about these beasts is that they are condemned. That they will not continue forever. Their kingdoms come and their kingdoms go. The everlasting kingdom does not belong to any one of these beasts and to any man here, but rather the everlasting kingdom belongs to the one to whom God, the Ancient of Days, will give it, namely to the very one who is like a son of man. And so these beasts are condemned. As one of my favorite hymns, this is my father's world, goes, though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And as the ruler, he will judge the city of man and he will bring it to ruin. Just as the, the empire of Babylon came to a fall, as the Medes and the Persians came to a fall, as Greece came to a fall, as Rome came to a fall, so too every city of man will come to a fall. And therefore they are rightly condemned. And we see this as the Ancient of Days takes his place upon his seat, his throne, Verse 9 says, thrones were placed, the Ancient of Days took his seat. We'll go over this description um, in more detail next week. But here he's seated, regal, in august glory, unmoved, unfazed, unworried, and simply pronounces his judgment that must come to pass. The same sovereignty that we see in God speaking And ordering his creation in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. So too God pronounces a verdict upon these beasts, and it is fulfilled. They fall and are killed. And this is the inevitable fall of every city of man built upon the pride of man and the desire for self-glory. Daniel says, I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire, the very fire that proceeds from the throne of the Ancient of Days. And so as we come to a conclusion here, again, we'll pick this up next week as well to to dive more into this, but we needed to first see the nature of the kingdom of man, the city of man, what is it like? And we've seen instantiations of it in terms of these beasts arising. And though the city of man may seem appealing at times, yet we're brought behind the curtain, an apocalypse that reveals to us their true nature, a false dominion, a counterfeit dominion that seeks to undo the good creation of God. And therefore, we are called to come out of this city. We are called to come out of the cities of man and rather to come into the city of God, the kingdom of his beloved son, in which there is not chaos but peace, in which there is not biting and devouring, but love and joy and brotherly kindness towards one another. And therefore, as we are given this vision, right, on the one hand, we can look merely at the sea and become afraid and alarmed. But this vision raises our minds heavenward to the Ancient of Days, seated upon his throne in heaven, where he is serene and tranquil, 
And as our minds are fixed there, as we linger there looking upon the Ancient of Days, it's then that our lives begin to reflect something of his character. As our own lives take on that character of no longer panicked, but at peace. No longer fretting ourselves, but trusting in the Lord, being unmoved like Daniel and his friends. And so if our minds are only fixed on the city of man, then yeah, it seems pretty overwhelming. But when we look to the Ancient of Days, seated upon his throne in heaven, great poise comes over the church. As we interact with the world around us, as things that we don't like, leaders we don't like maybe, or elected, whatever it might be, things that seem to be against the church, whatever it might be, we rest in our sovereign God, the Ancient of Days. And so I want to just conclude with uh, the words of John Newton's hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. One that reminds us that as we look up beyond the sea of chaos around us from which beasts arise, when we look to the Ancient of Days, seated in his throne in Zion, we can sing this word. And it's this serene strain that goes up from the voice of us, of God's people. Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, you may smile at all your foes. You may smile at these beasts, you're allowed. Because one like a son of man will come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He will receive a kingdom And though these kingdoms of the beasts may seem to be permanent, they are not. They will be crushed in the end, but the kingdom of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the kingdom that will remain forever and ever. And therefore, leave the city of man and come by faith to the city of God, to Christ, the king of that city. And there, with salvation's wall surrounded, smile at all your foes. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you that you are uh, the Ancient of Days, unshaken, unmoved as you reign upon your throne in heaven. Thank you that in the midst of nations raging, raging and peoples plotting in vain, you have still established your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as King of Kings by raising him from the dead and seating him at your right hand in heaven. Father, may you give us a sure repose. May you give us uh, tranquility and serenity as we live as your people in this life. That though the world may seem to totter and shake and even be undone all around us, and yet, Lord, we know that it remains your world, that your purposes are being accomplished, that you are the one who plays uh, with even Leviathan in the sea, as you orchestrate all things, even the evil deeds that are done that are wicked and done against you, yet you orchestrate them for the good of your church and for the glory of your name. So give us such confidence in this life as we look to you, the ancient of days, and help us to rest in your son, the very son of man who came to restore the destiny for which you have created us, to restore us as a second Adam, as those united to him, may we bring honor and glory to his name as we live for his kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.